Thanks for listening to Gamblers. If you like this show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative offerings, like Icons Club, a history of the NBA told through the voices of its most legendary players, or Gene and Roger, a look back on two of the most famous film critics ever and how their influence stretches to modern media. Or check out 22 Goals, a series touring nearly a century of World Cup history through the lens of 22 of the most iconic goals ever scored. Thanks for listening. Now let's go make some wagers. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. I'm in the vault of a bank in Henderson, Nevada, a suburb of Las Vegas. And on the table in front of me is a safe deposit box stuffed full of cash. I balance how much like risk I want him to have. The person I'm with, the owner of this box of money, is a popular customer at this bank. The tellers, they all know him by name. Yeah, he's the man. And they all know exactly why he's here at the bank and what he's getting out of that safe deposit box. He's going to be placing bets for the next week, a lot of bets, leading up to February 13th. A big day for him. Hell, it's a big day for the entire city of Las Vegas. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Good luck. Thanks. Just do a Yui here, like, and just pull behind that car. That's okay. We rendezvous uh, in Las Vegas with one of his partners, who also happens to be his brother, to divvy up the money. Uh, but aren't I blocking the whole... If someone comes out... Or if you just quickly give me some monies. They, what are they doing? I don't know. We'll just block it. It's fine. We're sitting in a parked car, dividing up about $170,000 in cash into backpacks. Everyone in the car is looking around, paranoid about every person that passes on the sidewalk or drives by. Not paranoid because they're doing anything wrong. This is all above board, and they'll pay taxes on every penny. They're paranoid because they have $170,000 in a backpack in downtown Vegas, and they don't want to get robbed. If South Point comes out, I'll I'll probably need more. More than 50. Right. I'll probably go through two, three, four, five, 20 six. or 30 a station. No. Because you, you have like five bets, a thousand. I thought there were more than that, no? Okay. Really? 
I'll give you 60. Do you have a 60 as in $60,000. There's more money than backpacks. So they stuff about $20,000 into my bag without blinking an eye. And we split up and fan across Las Vegas with the cash. It's a little over a week until Super Bowl Sunday. And that doesn't give these guys very much time to do what they need to do, which is to bet every single dollar they have, a page right out of Brewster's Millions, on the Super Bowl. Uh, I got a long list here. Uh, 2,000, please. Uh, 66020. I'm looking for Stafford, no interception. I might have the wrong number there. Can you try? Yeah, I think it's right near there, like 6618 or 6622. It is $70,800. Sorry, man. At, th at this point, I don't know what's in any stack. That's the sound of the money machine counting the $70,000 that we just bet. Over the next week, this team, who have reunited after several years, would bounce from casino to casino in Las Vegas drive across the border to Arizona, and even fly to Atlantic City. At times, it would feel like a heist. And in a way, it was. But it wasn't illegal. They were trying to get down as many bets as they could for the big game. By kickoff, the total amount at risk will be well into the seven figures. The leader of this crew, the guy with the safe deposit box stuffed full of cash, is nothing like Ace Rothstein from the movie Casino. He's a soft-spoken 36-year-old from Virginia with an economics degree from Yale, an avid sailor and a student of Zen Buddhism. He's got money, a lot of it, but he doesn't live in an ostentatious mansion. He prefers a small apartment in downtown Las Vegas with little more than a bed and stacks of books about politics, history, psychology, and religion. By appearances, you'd never make him for one of the most important and successful sports bettors in the United States. His name, honest to God, is Rufus Learned Peabody. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, and this is Gamblers. Tom, get ready to write down, write down someone. And We're at the Westgate Super Bowl. One of the largest and certainly one of the most respected sports books in Las Vegas. It's the Thursday the week before Super Bowl Sunday, 10 days until the Los Angeles Rams and Cincinnati Bengals kick off. And it's here that our story really begins. Because this is the day that the Westgate puts up their Super Bowl props. The board has changed. Are they going to give us packets or? Yeah, he said they were. Take a picture of it all. I'm going to hit that one. That's a nice one. And it's, again, it's on poor lady. And nobody else is going to have it, so we're not going to fuck up the markets. Most of us, if we bet on football, bet on either the side or the total. The side is which team you think will win, often with a point spread, some number of points you either lay if you're picking the favorite or take if you're betting the underdog. The total is the number that represents the combined number of points scored by both teams and you bet the actual total will be either over or under that number. The Super Bowl, however, is not just another football game. It's a global event with more than 200 million people watching around the world. And when it comes to gambling, 
there is no event like it. Billions of dollars are bet on the game every year, mostly with illegal or offshore bookmakers. Here in the United States, at regulated bookmakers, however, most of that money isn't bet on the total or the side. It's bet on props. A prop bet is a bet on literally any other outcome in the game besides the side or the total. Like how many receiving yards a certain player will get, or who will score the first touchdown, or whether the first play will be a run or a pass, or whether there will be a safety or overtime, or whether the coin toss will result in heads or tails. Where did prop bets come from? Well, the Super Bowl used to be kind of boring. Well, the evolution is is that in the early 1990s, all these games were blowouts. All the Super Bowls were blowouts. That's Matt Jacob from Props.com, a sports gambling publication based in Las Vegas. Their gamblers intrigued and into the game. And so what turned out to be just a few props at the time grew and grew a little bit more and more. And then in 1995, Super Bowl, when the Chargers played the 49ers, and there was an 18-and-a-half-point spread, they went, we really got to figure out a way to get these guys because the Niners are going to win the game in a blowout. And so their, their prop Because of that 1995 blowout, and the creativity of Jay Cornegay, the head of the Westgate Sportsbook and the godfather of the Super Bowl prop, you can now bet on nearly anything in the Super Bowl. In fact, today, on the massive screens surrounding the more than 30,000-square-foot sportsbook, there are hundreds of prop bets, a seemingly never-ending menu that stretches 220 feet across and 20 feet into the sky. It's like Christmas. I mean, it's a tradition. That's Patrick Everson, a writer from Vegas Insider. Probably going to be 500 offerings, and a lot of these, these are index props where you have, you know, four, five, 10, 11, 12 different options. So really, there are literally thousands of possible bets you could make. And when you have that much, the sharp bettors, guys like Rufus Peabody and others, they know if they look real carefully, they're going to find holes. And that's what all these people in line are trying to do right now. The holes Patrick is talking about are the gaps between the number the Westgate has predicted and the gambler's own projections of what those numbers should be. Rufus and the other people in line here tonight are not your everyday gamblers. The Thursday the week before the Super Bowl is a bit of a gambling tradition in Vegas because that's the night the Westgate releases all their props. And since Westgate has way more props than anyone else, and they usually have them up first, then the professionals like to be able to bet them right away, looking for numbers that might be off from their own projections, and then bet them before the market forces the Westgate and the other sportsbooks around the world to move the number closer to where they think it should be. Do you have your two that you're betting though? Yeah, yeah. Just write down a list, like then we then we go through. Yeah, I know. But basically prioritize what you what what is good. Like, find, if you can find great stuff, that's amazing. Bengals scored before they punt, plus 140, I think, would be really nice, too. But I don't know if that's the first thing I'm hit. The Westgate has a rule that you can only bet two things at a time. So the gamblers line up at the window, make their two bets, then go to the back of the line. And they do this all night until the bookmakers adjust the lines to something the gamblers no longer see any value in betting. There'll always be more to bet, too, but it's, it's also figuring out what I want to bet now versus what I didn't want to wait on. A lot of these gamblers are looking for ARBs, or arbitrage opportunities, meaning numbers that differ from the numbers that other sports books, either in Las Vegas or overseas. And they're going to bet both sides to lock up a small profit. Rufus, however, has a different strategy. 
he has created computer models for each of the hundreds and hundreds of different props and made his own projections. And he's betting on the ones that differ from his. Gamblers like Rufus are known as originators, meaning their action originates the line movements that everyone else in the world reacts to. And originators, successful ones anyway, are few in number. Yeah, so, honest, so, so getting mix and plus numbers, I should totally take that. Um, touchdown first? Did you do any of those? No. no. It's just you're looking at number of touchdowns divided by, like, basically what percentage of the touchdowns are. That's how we price it. That's the easy way to price it. When originators find something with value, they want to bet as much as they can because there's no guarantee those lines will stay where they are. Here at the Westgate tonight, there's a packed house despite the fact that only one NBA game is blaring from the dozens of giant screens. A lot of the people here are sharp bettors, here to bet props. And the Westgate won't take more than $2,000 on each bet. A lot of sports books won't even take that much, especially not from guys like Rufus. That makes it a real challenge for Rufus and his partners to bet as much as they're hoping. It requires travel, cooperation, and coordination, and round-the-clock research. But it all starts with the Westgate. I think he's going to call it. Only on the app. Thank goodness. Yeah, he's, <laughs> I'm he's ring the bell. $50,000 might sound like a drop in the bucket when you're trying to bet millions. But the Westgate props are the first to go up. And they're only taking $2,000 at a time from Rufus and Tom. So there's a real cap on what they can bet. Tomorrow, however, the Westgate numbers will be copied at books all over the world, adjusted based on what Rufus bet. So that $50,000 will have played a role in shaping the market. And Rufus may never get these numbers again. As the action wound down at the Westgate, still 10 days before the Super Bowl, Rufus met up with a group of other pros in the sportsbook bar to trade notes and tell stories. The Super Bowl, I'm going to be honest, the Super Bowl, I think you'll agree with me on this, right? Maybe it's not the most, I guess, in terms of how much your time is worth. It's, it may not be the, the most lucrative thing in the world, but it's like in your DNA once you start doing it. Yeah. So you have to help with I was like shaking with like right, nervous energies. I get, I get yeah. sick. I mean, people think my name is Rufus. I went to Yale. I was on the sailing team. They think, oh, I can't come from all this privilege and like generations of... Rufus Peabody grew up in Alexandria, Virginia the son of two architects and the oldest of three children. He became a sports fan early on, steeped in Washington, D.C. sports culture. His fandom began, naturally, with Washington's victory in the 1992 Super Bowl. I went to a private school for kindergarten and first grade, and my kindergarten teacher taught us the Redskins fight song. The, well, now they're the commanders, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that was the year they won the Super Bowl. He attended T.C. Williams High School, which you might know from the movie Remember the Titans. T.C. Williams was no prep school. It was a large and diverse public school. So Rufus wasn't so cloistered, despite what someone might think from a quick glance at his athletic and academic resume, which included a stint on the tennis, track, and sailing teams, college at Yale, and a wardrobe straight out of an L.L. Bean catalog. It was at T.C. Williams that Rufus developed the passions that would define the rest of his life, math, and sports. My senior year, I was the statistician for the basketball team, and I covered high school basketball games for the local newspaper. I, I, that time, I thought I wanted to be a sports journalist. 
sports was always his thing. You know, he was doing, he was keeping box scores at baseball games when he was like, when he was like seven years old. So that's Tom Peabody, Rufus's younger brother, who is now one of his betting partners and is out here with us in Las Vegas, helping him during Super Bowl weeks. I think he was always going to do something really pretty unique. Like, he's just somebody who I don't see fitting into a normal role in society. Rufus ended up going to Yale, his parents' alma mater. But Yale didn't have a journalism major. So he floated around for a while, eventually settling on economics. For a while, he thought he might end up working on Wall Street. But one day he read an article on ESPN about a company called Las Vegas Sports Consultants, who at that time were the odds makers for most of the Las Vegas sports books. And I was like, this looks like the coolest place ever. I could do sports numbers for a living. And I called the phone number. And I basically got the runaround for like a month. And eventually I got this guy, I, I, I got this guy on the phone and I was just like, I want to do, I want to do an internship for you. You don't have to pay me. I just want to come out and like, I want to learn, right? <laughs> the man on the other end of the line was Kenny White, the CEO of Las Vegas Sports Consultants. And neither Kenny White nor Rufus Peabody had any idea what to expect from each other or from this arrangement. Las Vegas Sports Consultants was decidedly old school with traders who had been doing their calculation with paper and pencil since before computers were even invented, and with little knowledge or interest in things like quantitative analytics. I got to meet the head trader there, sort of a, exactly what you'd imagine, like a guy who was smoking cigar in this, <laughs> in this dingy room with all these monitors in front of him. Large guy, thick New York accent, but... I asked this guy, I said, well, you know, theoretically you can, you maximize your profit by setting a point spread between, somewhere between what the public thinks the true number is and what the actual true number is, right? And he, he said, theory, theory, in theory, a dick don't fit in an asshole. That's what I think of theory. But despite being rough around the edges, the people Rufus met at Las Vegas Sports Consultants knew their business, even if they didn't always know why they knew their business. Nobody there could tell you what a p-value was or anything like that, right? Like, nobody even had intro stats courses. But these people were really, really good with numbers. And while Rufus could add some value to their work with his approach, his knowledge of gambling and betting markets was purely academic, based on research he had done for a professor one semester back at Yale. This was a long way from the Ivy League, though. The work they were doing at the LVSC offices wasn't just academic. When these guys made a number, they didn't just sell it to the casino— they went out and bet it. And it didn't take long for Rufus to join in. I absorbed so much information from these people that it, it, it had been their lives. They gave me some data to play with, too. They had records, the LVSC did. And so I was able to actually sort of like explore this stuff and be like, yeah, actually, you know, over the last, you know, 10 years, Doing this, you know, parlaying the home underdog with the under for baseball has actually returned to, you know, 3.4% profit, blah, 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 right? So I'd also run out to, before the baseball game started at like 4 o'clock, I would like run out to a book to place some bets. Yale was paying Rufus a $2,500 stipend for the internship, and LVSC was paying him $10 an hour. Plus he had some money saved up from summer jobs. So after he paid the $400 rent on his one-bedroom apartment, he had a little bit of money left to play with. And play, he did. I'm not naturally a gambler. I'm naturally someone that loves games, I guess. It, it had a scoreboard. 
like I could track my results and look and it was like I don't know that that's enough spoke to me like the record keeping and all that played blackjack I learned how to card count yeah I mean I, I, I made some money doing it I liked the adventure of it I was in Las Vegas you know every, the rest my life before that had all been it's like you're told what to do I was sort of this was the first time I was doing something completely on my own. But despite all the fun he was having, at the end of the summer, his carriage was going to turn into a pumpkin because LVSC didn't have the money or the need to keep him on. He'd need to go back to school and figure out what options he had on Wall Street. Then something happened in sports betting, well, really in sports, that would change everything for Rufus. An NBA referee was caught betting on games. When the news hit that referee Tim Donaghy had admitted that he had illegally bet on games. Games he himself had officiated. And did betting on the NBA give you a higher high than betting on other sports? I think it gave me a higher high because I was able to predict the outcome of the games. And I think when you talk about gambling and the euphoria that comes with it, um, making winning picks is what excites you. Kenny had Rufus take a look at the games that Donaghy had refed and look at line movements and see what kinds of connections he could come up with to see if they could prove Donaghy was rigging games based on the data. Rufus dove in head first. So the work I did, Kenny sent to like the FBI and the NBA um, and the NBA hired LVSC to monitor, essentially integrity monitor after that and like so like I, I kind of brought in some business to LVSC and I think it was a way if that hadn't happened maybe I wouldn't have had a way to prove to them that I actually had some value Rufus did prove to them that he had value and Kenny offered Rufus a job after graduation for $25,000 a year Rufus surveyed his other options working as a quant or a trader for a finance bank on Wall Street but the choice between working in Vegas for $25K a year and working on Wall Street and potentially making millions it was a no-brainer for Rufus. He packed his bags and headed back to Las Vegas. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. Stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. And you're eventually going to get on the highway, the 
515, which turns into the 11. And then you just stay on that forever until, <laughs> until we're in another state. Until we're in another state. The morning after our busy day at Westgate betting props, Rufus and I are up early, driving through the desert in his BMW, headed for the Arizona state line. As we drive, he's describing for me his entire operation, which consists of teams of people across the United States and in the United Kingdom who are sharing information and splitting action on the bets they make. You know, this guy's got a, a, a big operation in, in the UK. He's got over 100 runners that are you know, physically going to these, these sports books and, and actually physically placing bets there, plus accounts and all that. So basically, yeah. It's important to do it this way, he tells me, because one person, at least a sharp better as good as Rufus, can't bet millions of dollars on a single game. Hell, they can't even bet 10,000. Sharp players like Rufus are limited by sports books. And even when they're allowed to bet small amounts, and let's be clear, a small amount in this instance can be $1,000, the sports books will take the bet and then immediately move the number based on it since they know exactly who Rufus is and respect his knowledge. Rufus's way around this is to partner with a network of more anonymous gamblers so he can be in action on hundreds and hundreds of small bets all over the world. We have people in Colorado that get, like, down for us. We have uh, people in Vegas. He's got the whole team. We just split action with them as friends. Mm-hmm. We have this whole infrastructure. Rufus has to hold up his own end, however. And that's why we're driving to Arizona. The state recently legalized sports betting and they allow people to bet on their phones. But you need to be located inside the state to bet. These companies are licensed state by state and their technology is good. You can't fool it. You need to be in the state and not just standing on the state line. You got to get all the way in. In our case, that meant driving deep into the middle of nowhere. A remote truck stop 20 miles past the state line where we parked so Rufus could deposit about $100,000 into a few online sports books and rip off some bets. Oh, fuck. I triggered approval screen. I didn't want that. Ah, the dreaded approval screen. This meant the sports book was sending Rufus's bet to a trading desk for a human to decide whether to accept, reject, or offer the same bet at some smaller amount of money. Which really sucks when you're Rufus because it's like a poker player showing their cards to their opponent before they decide whether to call. Now, the sportsbook can decide to reject the bet, then move the line in their favor, something that is honestly kind of bullshit. Old school bookmakers would have to take the bet first before they move the line, essentially pay for the information a sharp like Rufus is providing. But these bookmakers, they're getting it for free. Now it's going to go to approval like that, which isn't good just because it means that like, you want to stay under the radar if you can. Mm-hmm. Not that, like, I mean, they know who I am betting and stuff, but, oh, they approved it. Sweet. I don't want them to go to approval, though, because then mm-hmm. it's always better to be under the radar. A few minutes later, Rufus moved from the betting app to his own simulations. His face, now buried in his laptop. I'm just querying simulation results. I have results from, like, 40,000 simulations here, basically. Like. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I have all these players' stat lines. Like, okay. So Here's you a simulated stat. the game 40,000 times? I, I didn't simulate the game. I simulated each of the players' stats. Rufus's secret is simple. He uses machines. 
builds computer models that can run simulations to figure out a distribution of possible outcomes and assign probabilities to them. These models run on a couple of different important ingredients. The first is Rufus's opinions. Every model requires a human's opinion on some level. Rufus programs his with ratings, degrees of uncertainty, probabilities of things like injuries or numbers of snaps for a certain player, and all these variables could differ from one handicapper to another. For Rufus, these opinions exist sometimes on a granular level, deep inside the data. He doesn't see all the data the same, but he looks for context, like how gaining three yards when it's third and two means something a lot different than gaining three yards when it's third and four. Rufus's opinions, they're not like yours or mine, like having an opinion about whether one quarterback is better than another. His opinions are about things like which numbers in the vast ocean of his spreadsheet matter and which ones don't. Mixing under three and a half plus 125, that's insanely good. Joe Mixon is the Cincinnati Bengals running back. And the bet Rufus is considering here is that Mixon will catch fewer than three and a half passes in the game. If he's right, he'll win $125 for every $100 he bets. Rufus's data showed that Mixon does actually catch a lot of passes for a running back, but more so when his team is winning. But when they're losing, you see a lot more P. Ryan in negative game scripts. And the fact is the Bengals are a four and a half point underdog here. So since the Bengals are underdogs, they're expected to be behind. That's what he calls a negative game script. His snap counts were lower some weeks, and those were weeks where they were down. And, and so, I mean, so I modeled that in terms of snap count, but also in terms of, like, how many routes he's going to run and stuff. The second important ingredient is the data that Rufus feeds the machine. He doesn't just create his own data. He actually buys a lot of it on all sorts of things, from game stats to weather. The data is so valuable, Rufus wouldn't tell me who he gets it from. That's how much data is the secret sauce to this work, truly the oil of the information age. The data and his opinions are mixed together into a model that simulates tens of thousands of potential outcomes. Rufus likes to talk about his method as process, as in focus on the process, not the result. He contrasts the way he bets with how most of the public bets on sports, which is to bet on a narrative, some notion of how they think the game will play out based on a storyline, or their intuition about what should happen. What the public rarely does is think quantitatively, which is to say, most of us don't do a whole hell of a lot of math. Shortest touchdown under one and a half yards. That's one that people, I mean, I would think the average a recreational better who doesn't see this often would think, oh, you know, how likely is it that there's a one-yard score? Not, not likely at all, but if there was only one touchdown to be scored, you'd only have like a 14.5% chance of having a one-yard score. But if there's five touchdowns scored, the odds are one minus the chance that all the touchdowns are not one-yard scores. So like point, you know, eight by five to, to the fifth. Rufus doesn't just have models on all these hundreds of little Super Bowl props like receiver yards or shortest touchdown. He has models on nearly every sport you can imagine. My, my, my golf code basically makes seven figures a year, so I need to, like, I, that is something that I'm going to keep under wraps. 
Rufus has models on baseball, basketball, even NASCAR. And he started building these models back when he worked at Las Vegas Sports Consultants. At first, as part of his job to help the casino sportsbooks set good prices. But like a lot of the people who worked for LVSC before him, it didn't take him long to figure out these models he was building for the casinos. They could make him some money too. And for a guy earning $25,000 a year, that prospect was certainly intriguing. But he was still a $50 better for the most part, without any bankroll to speak of. All of that would change in the run-up to the 2009 Super Bowl when he found himself in line behind a professional gambler named Mark DeRosa, not to be confused with the baseball player of the same name. I just happened to be lucky and get there right when the prop sheet came out. And I, but he was there, he was first in line, and you know, I'm waiting behind him patiently for 40 minutes. Kato, which just comes by, he orders a Jack and Coke while he's in line. They come and bring, you know, I mean, he's just betting all these props. Mark was about the same age as Rufus, in his 20s, but he was betting a lot more money than Rufus was used to betting. Not only that, he seemed to know what he was doing, and Rufus was intrigued. A few months later, at the Palms, I, I saw him asking the, the ticket writer, the supervisor, about NBA props. I followed him out of the sports book because I wanted to know, I was probably a little too shy to ask myself. And I, wanted, and, and I was like, this guy's betting props, like, I wonder what his deal is. As Mark tells the story now, he, he had his hand in his pocket on his mace. He thought that I was, you know, maybe someone was trying to mug him because... And you, just, like, tailed him out to the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then he was like, oh, I recognize this guy from that from the Golden Nugget at that time. So he invited me to a party with some of the people he worked with and, and at the, quote, frat house. The frat house was a group of gamblers who had recently relocated to Las Vegas from Boone, North Carolina. Now, you've probably heard of the MIT Blackjack team or seen the movie 21. Well, these guys from Boone were on a whole different level. They met at Appalachian State as students, and they recruited kids on campus with flyers to join their gambling team. They counted cards, hustled online casino bonuses, and eventually bet sports, particularly NASCAR. They made so much money, a popular online casino actually changed their terms and conditions to say that they didn't accept customers from China, Iran, India, or Boone, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, I got a whole zip code backed off of the online casino. That's funny. That's Zach White, a member of the Appalachian State team. He and his buddies from Boone were only in their 20s and they were already legends in the gambling world. After online casinos were effectively squelched by the U.S. Justice Department in 2006, they decamped for Las Vegas. And Rufus was about to fall into their web. They invited me to dinner, almost like an interview. They basically offered me an arrangement where they would give me a 20% free roll um, and we'd bet baseball stuff. He, was worried. He, didn't have any, he didn't have a big bankroll. He was betting at two or $300 a game. Um, and he was tremendously cheap. And he was like worried about his laptop not running good. He's like, you guys buy me a laptop. And if you give me you know, like a signing bonus, then I'll, I'll come on. Zach was initially skeptical of bringing Rufus on board with the team. Man, I don't know if the yell thing impressed us or, like, turned us off. It was just something that I was like, well, all of us were, you know, we were country folks from North Carolina for the most part, and we went to a public school, and we were able to get to this point without an Ivy League degree or anything. So, you know, at that point, us doing the laptop and the 10 grand thing was, like, not a significant investment to us, bankroll-wise. So, we're like, it's worth a shot. And he proved his worth right, right away, for sure. Yeah. 
Rufus put in his two weeks notice at Las Vegas Sports Consultants, and he came on board as a partner in the Boone Syndicate. Yeah, and after the first month, we were up like 100 grand on it, and it was like more money than I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I'd made $20,000 in a month. It was a fun group of guys. We, we, we went out, we partied together, we like, I don't know. It was, I was a 23-year-old in Las Vegas. I can't articulate what it was, but it was just like, it was part of something. Rufus almost immediately started to get attention from lots of different places for his skills, both inside the world of gambling and out. The Wall Street firm turned gaming corporation Cantor Gaming tried to recruit him to come work for them. And Rufus's senior thesis advisor, Cade Massey, who was now a professor at the Wharton School of Business, asked Rufus to come help him develop NFL power ratings for the Wall Street Journal. The Massey Peabody rankings, as they would come to be known, ranked every team in the NFL from week to week and were published in the Wall Street Journal along with a predicted point difference between whatever teams were matched up that week. The model was good, too. It was accurate enough to be profitable. Rufus was giving away his secrets to the public for the price of a newspaper. But he didn't mind. To him, it was recognition for his hard work and expertise, from a respected institution, no less. And he liked that. I mean, look, I, I got in the Wall Street Journal. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I was, like, published. I, you know, at that time in my life, I really kind of, I think I, I wanted that sort of recognition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I wanted to be famous or something. I don't know. Not famous, but I wanted to be respected. His partners in the Boone crew, however, weren't so happy about Rufus's newfound fame. So any type of media exposure, in my mind, always hurt me um, as a guy that's going across the counter. They were like, well, why, why do you have to put him in the Wall Street Journal? Like, why can't we just bet him? Not long after the Wall Street Journal started running the Massey Peabody rankings, the Washington Post reached out to do a story about Rufus, which rankled his partners even more. It blew up our spot a little bit. It, you don't want to put your name out there like that, it, you know, they talked about our operation. Like they weren't, they did not participate in it in the slightest. It mentioned what car I drove. They're like, you know, people can follow you now and like, you know, you'll be easy to, an easy target for someone to rob you. They're just like, there's no upside, there's only downside. You know, I, I, I got mad at Rufus quite often when he would do articles or would do radio interviews or stuff um, and mention, you know, especially mention the plays and mention the operation, how, you know, how, like where, what you're betting where and stuff like that. But the toothpaste was out of the tube, and Rufus soon went from being a guy that bookmakers and gamblers whispered about in casino bars to a minor celebrity. I think Rufus, there's a lot of times when he, he would really rather get the notoriety and, and, and have people write articles or be on ESPN to make a little bit of extra money. And I was just always the opposite. I was like, I really don't care what... ESPN thinks or what my friends or random strangers on the internet think about if I'm that good or, or not or whatever. I'd just rather have more money at the end of the day or at the end of the week. Rufus seeking attention for his success at betting on sports exposed a significant divide between the way he and his partners, or for that matter, between he and the vast majority of professional sports bettors, looked at their work. To most gamblers, attention meant fewer bookmakers would take your bets, which meant less action and less money. To Rufus, Attention meant validation for all his hard work, which to him had real value. To his partners, however, validation wasn't worth jack shit. As Don Draper once said, That's what the money is for! I didn't have anything when I first got started gambling in college. I mean, I worked my way up from, like, having a couple grand and, and doing little 
red chip blackjack trips, you know, trying to make a few bucks and, and understand the mathematics of gambling. And we were doing some bonus hustling and stuff. And that really allowed me to, to grow the bankroll. But like, it was to the point where like, you know, I had to win, you know, cause I had, I didn't have, a, you know, any other source of income or anything. I asked those guys a question. I think it was our first year working together. Would you rather have $2 million that you made yourself through your hard work and you felt really good about or inherit $10 million that you did nothing to deserve. But I mean, they all said 10 million, but I was like, well, what's the, what's the equivalent? What number does that change? And they said 10 million. It doesn't matter if it was 9 million they earned versus 10 million they received, they'd still rather have the 10 million. I don't know. I mean, they were very much practical. It was just about making money. It didn't matter how the money was made. I had the coolest job and I wanted people to, I don't know, I wanted people to think that I was great. You know, there's a whole like, what do you want to be? Do you want to be famous or do you want to be rich? Because it's, you know, you're not necessarily able to do both. But it turned out, you could. Over the next six years, Rufus and his partners would earn well into the seven figures, betting on nearly every sport that humans and occasionally a couple of animals could play. And along the way, Rufus's celebrity grew with more profiles, interviews, and even a short stint as a correspondent on ESPN. The over. So come on, Rufus. Are you kidding me? There's I know. It no sounds way. crazy. There's it no sounds way crazy, TB12 it? throws a pick. But it, what, why? What do you like here? You know, I know he only threw one interception all season, all regular season, but there's a lot of randomness in interceptions. And I think the Patriots are going to throw the ball more than they have in recent weeks. I mean, the kid's a genius. It's pretty impressive. Every single time when I'm like, this is the way I do it, and this is the way I've done it for how many years, and this way wins, and he's like, well, this is the way you can make it better. He's always got something that, some way to make it better. The team was flourishing and was essentially reinventing sports betting along the way. And when the 2016 Super Bowl came around and the Boone Crew's home state Carolina Panthers were facing off against the Denver Broncos as big favorites, the Boone Crew weren't just going to watch it from a Vegas sports book. They were going to go to the game and celebrate in style. Rufus and his team were on top of the world. We went to the Super Bowl. We spent a whole bunch of money to go to the Super Bowl and watch that awful display. It's a third and nine. Rushing four ball comes out of the hands of Newton. It's on the ground and still on the ground. Picked up by T.J. Ward at the four-yard line. I still remember that Super Bowl. I, I, I remember being like all disappointed that we lost and being kind of upset and just it's, right it was an under game but we still like our unders the unders we had to not win and then just being like because I just started going to the Buddhist classes like that the fall before that just remember being like okay I'll just accept this and then actually just being like except like how lucky am I to feel this disappointment and then actually like enjoying the feeling and then going to Lucille's and having two beers and talking to a fireman. That <laughs> was my evening. 24 to 10 was the final score. We laid Panthers too. Like, like, were they a favorite? Yeah. They were like six point favorites. How were the Panthers ever a favorite? We, can, we didn't lose a game until like week 15. Oh, you were 15. Yeah, but it was all like smoking mirrors. <laughs> what do you mean? What? what? You smoking mirrors? I don't know. They weren't that good. He's, almost, he's just a hater. It's the beginning of the worst week of my life. What was after that? Just depression. That is when everything went to shit. 
And, you know, the next week, you know, we were sitting, you know, tallying up, selling up or Rufus says, you know, I just feel like I need, I need to have a bigger percentage of this operation. They're talking about it and the blinds were down <laughs> in the middle of the day. And I, I wanted a higher percentage basically. And I had the intellectual property basically, like we're betting my models and I'm responsible for us getting a lot of these accounts too at that point. And it just felt like to me, the value of what I was doing was more than 25% because everything was split equally. And, and I brought that up and I wanted to kind of renegotiate. Like I wanted, I felt like I was worth more than that. And I think Zach said something like, look, well, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for us or something like that. And it's true. But at the same time, it's like, how long do I have to, they made me a lot of money, but I made them a lot of money too. And, and so there was a little bit of, there were some hard feelings there at the time. I think it was a tough conversation to have because it's hard to not have it be personal. And I guess everybody just had different opinions on which way the team was going to go at that point. It was a yeah, tough like, moment. It was like a family, like, it was, we were like a family in a way. Rufus had come a long way from his $25,000 a year job and his dingy Vegas apartment. He was no longer the guy who sheepishly took orders from foul-mouthed, cigar-chomping bookmakers. He was no longer just some doe-eyed Ivy League egghead adrift in Sin City. With the Boone Boys, Rufus had been bringing in rafts of money. And now that Rufus had left the team, he was going to need to find a way to bring in those millions on his own. He hired his own staff, found his own partners, built his own operation. And it didn't take him long to get it all on autopilot. And after so much success, it didn't take long for him to get bored. You do the same thing for like 13 years, 14 years, however long it's been. I don't even know anymore. It's my 14th Super Bowl. It becomes a little bit, you know, it becomes work, right? Rufus became listless. He needed a change of scenery. He decided he could do his work from anywhere, so he packed up and moved. I guess I think I, I, I'm perpetually semi-nomadic, I guess. But the plan was always to audition cities to live in. He moved to D.C., Boston, New York, Denver. He even signed up for a remote year where he joined a group of 50 professionals from around the world and they lived together in a different country every month for a year. Went horseback riding with gauchos in, in Cordoba, Argentina and you know, wine tasting in Portugal and like some um, hot springs thing in Bulgaria, right? Whitewater rafting in Croatia. But after schlepping his stuff from one city to the next, jet-setting from one country to another, after all that, he ended up right back here in Las Vegas. I'll tell you why I'm here. I was, I'm here for the Super Bowl right now. And after I left Boston, I could live anywhere. But Vegas is home. Rufus loves Las Vegas. You can see it in how he lights up when telling people about it, or planning an evening for out-of-town friends who come to visit, or when he takes me and Tom out to dinner at one of his favorite restaurants after a long day of making Super Bowl bets. During the meal, Rufus shared a little of his philosophy around what gambling has meant to him, how it's more than work for Rufus. What I've always said is gambling teaches you more about life than anything else, I think. <laughs> I mean, not in, the, in this way, anything could have teach, teach you that, but like, I think gambling makes a lot of things that would otherwise remain unsaid. It, it kind of brings them out in the open, maybe. 
that in the short run, variance and like is the primary driver of the result. In the long run, it's going to be skill, but we're going to have these ups and downs. And if you got up every time you won and down every time you lost, then you would just have a heart attack. The props I bet in Nevada and driving to Arizona alone last week here lost ninety thousand dollars. I don't think of that as like I don't know. I don't think of that as three cars or a down payment on a house or whatever. I don't know. I think of it as like I think of it as a number on a spreadsheet. Rufus may see the 90K he lost on the conference championships as just another number on his spreadsheet, but despite all his talk about not focusing on results, about process over everything, next week will be different. Next week, for whatever reason, reason goes out the window. The result will matter so much more because next week is more than just another football game. Next week... Is the Super Bowl. It's the one event of the year I really, I feel like I've felt some anxiety about before. I remember my first Super much- Bowl too. Like, I just, I remember waking up just being like, you know what? Please just let me not lose too much, right? It was like, because I knew there was so much, we had so much on the line. And it's not like, it's a fraction of what I bet over the course of a year. It's not that much at all. But it's just like, it's all there at once. And somehow I feel like it could somehow all go wrong, right? Whereas even over a golf tournament, I might have... Next week, it could somehow all go wrong. And if the Super Bowl goes wrong, just like in 2016, everything could all go to shit. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show's executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Finnessy. Gamblers was produced by Bobby Wagner, Mike Wargon, Noah Malale, and Vikram Patel. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. Fact-checking by Daniel Comer. Copy editing by Isaac Levy-Rubinet. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. The theme song was written by Isaac Lee. Other tracks you hear in this episode are from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. And special thanks to Jade Whaley. Thanks for listening.